Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Tonight, first of all, I'd like to break out of the pattern and move out of John to 1 John for a paragraph. Look with me at 1 John 3, 1 and following, three verses there. See what love the Father hath given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is, and all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. For a second lesson, I'd like to turn back to the Gospel of John, and I'd like for you to turn to the second chapter with me and read a familiar story there. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they remained there a few days. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we always need you, but tonight especially we have a sense of a need for you. We need to have your Spirit come and make alive to us the truth that is your truth, because all truth is yours. And so tonight as we deal with your word, let common things become sacred and holy to us and significant with eternal significance, and we will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. In our other sessions, we've gotten through two of the figures that we're dealing with. This morning, we talked about friendship, 
And also we talked about citizenship in his kingdom because he is the king of kings and he has a kingdom. One of the things I love about God is that uh, as the creator, he wants to make himself known to us. And we see it in the creation that he put life together, he put the creation together to bear witness of him. Now, oftentimes we do not see it, but I'm convinced the witness is there, and if we have eyes to see it, the whole creation speaks of him. You will remember that John in the first chapter speaks about him and says he's the light that lights every man that comes into the world. That's not a male figure. He's the light that lights every person that comes into the world. I have come to a thought that some of you who know me well have heard me say before, and most people smile when I say it, but I think of God as the world's best third-grade school teacher because uh, a third-grade school teacher is a genius at object lessons. A third-grade school teacher can take the most common things and teach all sorts of things with those as object lessons. I married a wife who was a master of dealing with children. First time I ever saw her teaching children, I said, that's the woman I want to teach my children. But she could take the most common things and teach significant things by. That is the way God is. And when he put the world together, he put it so that none of us would miss his eternal truth. None of us would miss him. So I think when our eyes are fully open, we will see how beautifully and magnificently he made his creation. All of us know, all normal people know what a friendship is, and so God says, I want to have that kind of relationship with you. Everybody is a member of some nation. All of us are citizens of some kingdom, one or another. And he says, you are to be citizens of my kingdom, and it's not a kingdom of this world. It's different, as we've said. Now, tonight we get to two figures that are much more intimate than even the friendship figure or the citizenship figure. Tonight we come to that matter of family. And so you see the passage in 1 John that says so beautifully that now we are the children of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but when we see him we will be like him because we will be members of his family and that likeness that we intended for us to him will be there and we will have a compatibility so that we can appreciate him and understand him. He made us so that we can understand him. And so he put everybody that you've ever met in a family. The one thing you know is that when you meet any person, you know there are two more people somewhere. And if you find those two, you know there are four more somewhere. Because all of us have a mother and a father, every person without exception. And so... When he talks about the family of God, he's talking about something that we should have a natural sensitivity to and a natural response and appreciation for. Now, the same thing is true in connection with marriage. Everybody may not be married, but everybody's either male or female, and being a male or a female equips a person for marriage. I remember when it sort of dawned on me that what it means to be a man is you're not all there because you're made for somebody else, and a female is the same way. We're made for each other. You know, there's an interesting 
story in Plato's dialogues where he speaks about human sexuality and the difference between the male and the female. And Plato said that when we were created originally, we were a double portion. We were persons with a double character. He said there were three kinds of human beings originally. There were people who were male, they had a male half and another male half. And there were people who had a female half and another female half, and they were wedded to each other. And there were people who had a male half and a female half, and they were wedded to each other. But then a great tragedy happened, and the equivalent of counterpart to the, to the biblical fall, and we were severed in two. And so the male-male person was now two persons, the female-female person was two persons, and the male-female person was two persons. And so they were seeking, they were only a half-person though, so they were seeking their other half to find each other. And so Plato explained the relationship and the desire of the one for the other in those terms. And of course he did that because he lived in a society where homosexuality was common, and so he counted as normal. It's interesting you don't get any of that in the Scripture. But there's a very careful indication. Read the creation story. God made Adam a male, and then he created Eve. She, the climax of his creation process, gave her to Adam, and the difference between the two has within it the power of creativity and the power of new life. But when you get the male-male or the female-female, there is a sterility there. But God is the God of life, and his purpose was that the two should be uh, different from each other and committed to each other. Now, God had a pedagogical purpose. And as I use that word, let me use it, labor it, pedagogical, because he's the great teacher. A pedagogical purpose for both the family and he had a pedagogical purpose for our sexuality. John, more than any other writer in the Scripture, deals with the family in the sense of the fatherhood of God. If you read the Gospel of John, and I urge you to pay attention to the passages where Jesus speaks about his relationship to his Father. These passages get more significant to me every year, and I find myself going back to them and reading them. It's beautiful to see how he relates to his father and how the father relates to him. But if you read the Gospel of John, I remember when it came home to me as quite a surprise that the main character, I was sure that in all the Gospels, the main character was Jesus. But when you come to John's Gospel, it's different. Because the main character in the Gospel of John is not Jesus. The main character in the Gospel of John is the father because Jesus has this sense of he's the sent one. He is the one that the Father has sent in his place, sent to this world to reveal him and to be the means of our redemption. But it is the Father who orchestrates the incarnation. It is the Father who orchestrates the passion. It is on Good Friday even. The central figure is not the one on the central cross, but the central figure on Good Friday is the Father who stands in the shadows who orchestrated the death of his own son for the redemption of all the rest of the sons of God. Now, if you'll read Paul, you'll find that there is a term used for Jesus that is picked up from the Old Testament, and we may get back to 
that a little later in connection with the Old Testament. But are you aware that Jesus is spoken, read Colossians, and you'll find that Jesus is spoken of as the firstborn, God's firstborn, the firstborn of all creation. And you know, when he is the firstborn, that means there to be others born. So he is the one who leads the way, and he is the one that we are to be a part of his family with him. But the Father orchestrated the life of that firstborn so that we all could enter into the family of God. Now, to me, it's very beautiful the way the Bible is is structured and the way God reveals himself in Scripture. You get uh, pictures given in the early days of Scripture that are fairly clear, and then as you live with the Scripture, you get the picture clearer and clearer, and when you come to the New Testament, you see it in a full-orbed way. And that's true of the fatherhood of God. Because if you go back, you'll find that the Old Testament doesn't talk a great deal about the fatherhood of God. But it is implicit there, and occasionally it comes through. It comes through sometimes by implication. I don't know how long it was before I noticed that when God came to Moses and said, I want you to go to Pharaoh so that my people can be set free, When you come to the fourth chapter of Exodus, and God is speaking to him, sending him, he said, go tell Pharaoh to let my firstborn son go. And if he doesn't let my firstborn son go, I will deal with his son. It will be son for son. Now, you know the Passover story well enough to know that God said, put the blood on the doorpost, and when the death angel comes through, he will not touch the firstborn son in the family of any home that has the blood on the doorpost. But if the blood is not there, the firstborn son will die. And so God says to Moses, you tell him to let my firstborn son go, or he will lose his firstborn son. It will be son for son. Now, you notice the relationship that God has established to the people of Israel here, to the Hebrew nation. He is speaking of that nation as his child, which means automatically that he is the parent of that child. Now, as you go through the Pentateuch, you begin to get some development of that implication. You come to the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32.6, and you will find Moses, God speaking and saying, Am I not your father? your creator, and that's the first time that God is spoken of as Father in Scripture. But then as you move on through, you get to passages like that in Hosea, where Hosea is thinking about Israel's deliverance from Egypt, and a text comes that is applied to Jesus when Joseph brings him back from Egypt, when they had fled to Egypt to escape Herod's wrath. And that line in the 11th chapter of Hosea that says, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Now, who is the son that God has called out of Egypt? It's Israel, the people of God, so that God is relating to his people as a parent to a child. You come to Jeremiah, and you will find Jeremiah saying, God speaking through him, I am Israel's father, and Ephraim, which is a term there for Israel, Ephraim is my firstborn. I remember when it first dawned on me that Israel is God's firstborn, 
That means that God intends to have other children, doesn't it? And so it dawned on me that when you get the Exodus story in the fourth chapter of Exodus, you get a missionary text and a magnificent missionary text. Because, you see, if Israel is the firstborn, God is contemplating other children, and those other children are to include Gentiles like you and me. I remember in my early days, I thought the first missionary text in the Bible was Matthew 28, go into all the world and preach the gospel. But from the earliest days of God's dealing with Israel, and actually, you know, from his call to Abraham, he has the last person in the world in mind, and the relationship that he wants is the relationship of a parent to a child. It's a fascinating passage in Ezekiel 16, which we will come back to later tonight for the other figure that we're using. But do you remember in Ezekiel 16, if you don't know that chapter, that's one you ought to know, because it is the Old Testament's philosophy of history. And it explains God's purposes for his people. It is there spoken of in terms of Israel, but it can be applied to the church just as well as to Israel. And so God speaks and says, when you were born, your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. And when you were born, your mother and your father didn't want you, and they threw you out in the wilderness and left you to die in your blood. And the word blood is in the plural there. And I came along, you were unwashed, you were unsalted, you were left naked, you were left there to die. And I came along and saw you in your knees. And he said, I took you as a babe and bathed you and clothed you and fed you and nurtured you. But as I saw you in my blood, I spoke and said, Chai, live. Now, the interesting thing is, if you will read Hamiropi's Code, that is an adoption formula. I missed that for years. But there's a professor at Southern Baptist Seminary who's written a commentary, a great commentary on Ezekiel. I had lunch with him the other day, and he is the one who dug out the Middle Eastern customs and the the background in Hammurabi's code. And he says, there's no question, but then when God came along and saw the babe lying in its blood, and because the word is plural, Dr. Block says, the baby was in its amniotic fluid, still in the bag, which meant it would drown in its own fluid, mother's fluid. God comes along and looks at this baby that's fated for death and says, hi, live. And that is an adoption for me. So this Israel is God's child, and God gives life to Israel. And that is the theme that is developed through the Old Testament. But when you get to the book of Samuel, you get a little different slant. Because when David is being established as king, if you will read the seventh chapter of Second Samuel, the story about the installation of David as the king of Israel, you will find that God speaks and says, I will be a father to you, and you will be my son. Now, the significant thing is that's the first time that you get God spoken of as the father of a single individual. But now, he is not only the father of David's people, but in a very special and a very particular way, he is the father of David himself. And so you get David in that second psalm, 
You remember that magnificent psalm, very significant psalm, the second psalm, where David is speaking and he says, God is speaking to him, and God says, I have set my king, not just his people, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then you get that passage which fits what we have said earlier about the firstborn. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage or I will give you the nations for an inheritance. So now you see that God is not only the God and father of a people, but he is becoming the God and father of single individuals. And so when you get to the New Testament, that becomes universal. And so Jesus says to his disciples, When you pray, say, Our Father, the Father for all of them. And when you come to Romans 8, in the 8th chapter of Romans, you will find that he speaks about the work of the Spirit in the heart, and what the Spirit does is he bears witness to us that we are the adopted children of God, and the Spirit within us cries out, Abba, Father, and God is our individual Father for every individual. And then we get the passage that we read from 1 John. So it's beautiful how the Scripture shows this desire of God for his people, and not only for the corporate body, but his desire for every individual, that every individual have that sense that he is my father. I remember, you will remember the testimony of John Wesley when he came to know Christ in that little chapel on Aldersgate Street in London. And he said that night, he said, I felt that God, for Christ's sake, had forgiven me, my sins, even mine. And the personal pronouns are the significant thing. My, individual, single. For the first time, John Wesley felt that God was his own personal father and that God in Christ had forgiven him his sins. Now, all of this lets us know that the family is part of what God means when he says, Let us make man, let us make them in our own image. That is, there is this parental character in the nature of God. There is this parental character and family structure in your life and mine, and it is a means for us to understand and know God better. One of the things that you learn in a family is that your life that you have is a gift. Somebody else gave it to you. One of the things you learn is that you spend nine months in somebody else's body and her life became yours. She gave you life and the reason you're here is because someone else gave it. What a parable of our relationship to God the Father. He gives us life. He sustains us. Eighteen times a minute our body witnesses by breathing that our life is not in ourselves. It's a gift that comes to us from God. The family is, one of the reasons is, We develop best in a context of structured love. And we need the family in order to give us that structure, and it needs to be a structure of love. We need teachers that are models, and we need models that are teachers. And the great teachers are in the family, the parents. You know, in our educational background, the concept of in loco parentis at the public school is there in the place of the parents. 
because the responsibility for the education of the child is first of all the parents, and the state helps assist the family in doing that. But it's in that family that we learn respect and affection. Now, one of the ways I think about it is that it's in the family that uh, we develop the right, we get the best training ground for knowing how to relate to God the Father, to worship him, to respect him, to obey him. And we learn that obedience and respect and love can go together. It's amazing the power of the family, how much it's the strongest institution we have. Several years ago, in 1982, I was in Canton, China, Guangzhou. And I found that they had permitted four churches to open. And so uh, I asked if we could attend a Wednesday night prayer meeting. And so I found myself in a Chinese church with about 250 to 300 Chinese worshipers. It It was a beautiful experience. I had a missionary with me who knew Cantonese extremely well, and he sat behind me and told me everything that was taking place in my good ear. And so I was able to participate in the service. It was like an inner varsity Bible study meeting. The pastor was in his mid-70s. He was almost as old as I am. I thought he was ancient in those days. But uh, he uh, had been converted under British Methodist missionaries back in the 1930s lived through Mao, and now he was ministering to his people again. And uh, he had uh, given everybody a list of questions, and so everybody sat there with a Bible in one hand and the set of questions in the other. And I listened for 50 minutes to a magnificent study of the Bible, taking them almost through the Scripture from beginning to end. As I looked at the crowd, I was amazed at the youthfulness of the crowd. And as I analyzed it, it seemed to me that at least 60% of the crowd was under 30 years of age. Now, as I thought about that, I was astounded because what we had been told was that under Mao, under the brutality of communism, the only people that kept any kind of faith were the grandmothers. And so when the churches were open, you expected to see only the aged there. But the mass of the audience that night was young. And so... uh, I watched that with great interest. Afterwards, I had the opportunity to have tea with the pastor. And as we sat, we chatted together. And I asked him, I said, could I ask a question? Did I read this congregation tonight right? Really? Sixty percent of it looked to me like we're under 30 years of age. And he smiled and nodded. I said, that means that 60% of your crowd was born under Mao. 60% of your crowd never saw freedom to worship. How did they become believers? And you know, he's very quiet. It's almost as if he had a secret and didn't know whether he could share it with me or not. But he slowly said, oh. They're children of believers. Or else, they're friends of children of believers. Or else, they're friends of friends of children of believers. You know, that was an exceedingly significant moment for me. 
How do you keep the church alive when the whole world is hostile to it? There's power in the family to do that. And there's power in the family that you will never have in the church. And the strength of the church will be determined by the strength of the family. Now I'm convinced that that family structure, you see, the background for it is the familial character of God himself, parent, child, father, son. And you read the story of Jesus and he is honoring his father and his obedience to him. He came not to do his own will and he didn't feel cramped or bound by that. But he found his fulfillment in doing the will of his father. Now, a family can teach you that structure and order is a very good thing and we need it. And that uh, law is not an enemy to our souls or to our freedom. Now, where else do you get that as beautifully expressed as in the family? Now, let me tell you one of the reasons that that is precious to me. My father was a lawyer and was... uh, very conscious of justice and what was right and wrong. I remember when I was just a little tight, depression days, one night he came in and he had six mint condition silver dollars. You remember the big old silver dollars? Cartwheels, we called them. And he showed us those six silver dollars. Now, you know, in those days, a dollar was a whale of a lot of money. I stared at those things, and that's the first time I ever really experienced avarice. I learned what greed was that night. And I looked at those, and I thought, man, wouldn't it be wonderful to have one of those? And uh, so I said to him, could I see one? So he freely, you know, put one of those big things in my hand, filled my palm. And I stared at that thing, and the avarice grew. And so I looked up at him and then looked back at that silver dollar and closed my hand on it. And then I looked up and then I put my hand behind me. And then I looked up at him and I took a step backward. And he turned to me and put out his hand and said, give it back. It isn't yours. And the way he did it, I knew I better. I got my first lecture that night on property rights. And when he got through with that lecture on property rights, I didn't want anything to do with that dollar. I began to learn. It was interesting. I was 20 years of age. I was a senior in college. I'd never known my father to borrow money until I was a junior in college. And he borrowed money to keep me in school. I was home for Christmas. And then New Year's Eve, he looked at me and said, you're leaving tomorrow? And I said, yes. He said, uh, handed me a check for $500. And he said, will this pay you out to June to your AB degree? And I said, yes, that'll pay me out. He said, good. So I put the $500 check in my pocket. That's let you know how different the world was in those days. But I went back to school and I paid my bill. Paid me out to my A.B. degree. Six weeks later on the 12th of February, or on the 10th of February, I got the only phone call I got in college. 
And they came to me at 5 o'clock in the morning and said, you have an emergency phone call. So I went to the girls' dormitory where there was the one telephone that was available for students. And it was my mother. And she said, honey, dad's gone. I said, what do you mean? She said, he died just a little while ago. I said, tell me about it. She said, well, I waked up and he was getting up. I knew what he'd do. He'd go to the kitchen, get him some milk, something to eat, and then he'd sit down and read his Bible. Do it every night. She said, I wake up again. He was in bed and he was quoting scripture verses to himself. He memorized scriptures over his last hour. She said, I wake up again and he'd call me and when I touched him, he was gone. And there was something inside me that said, it's all right. Now, the other thing that I thought, do you know it was years before I'd tell anybody what I thought? Because I thought it would be sheer presumption and a reflection on me. But when she told me he was gone and told me how, there was something inside me that said, well, he's finished his work. And do you know what I meant by him finishing his work? I thought that he lived to get me through college. And when he gave me that $500 check, his life was, he'd finished his work. Because now I had a college education, at least in prospect. And the reason I wouldn't tell anybody was because I thought it would sound like it was self-centeredness to think he lived for me. But I don't think he would have felt it was self-centeredness at all. <laughs> you know what I think about my father? He would have said, of course. I lived between 1929 and 1943, those depression years. He paid for 21 years of college for five kids, and I was the last one. And that $500 for the last bit. Now, what is a father? What is this father up here? The heavenly father... All that he has, he gives to his son. And his son, we become joint heirs with him. Now, uh, you know, that's been a great help to me in my Christian life. I think about the day he said, it's not yours. And the day he gave me. And when God says no, if you've got the right kind of background, you can say, I don't, may not understand, but you can trust him. And so you can be obedient in those moments because you've had that kind of background. And so God says, let's put together a social institution that will prepare people for the family of God. And everybody you've ever met has parents. So does everybody have a father? Because it's God's purpose that everybody, everybody's got a father with a little f because God purpose that everybody know the Father with a capital F. So you see, he structured the world so that we won't miss him. Now, if that's true of the family, what about our sexuality, our maleness and our femaleness? I don't know anything that is more of a mystery to me and more beautiful to me than this. Take, for instance, the passage we read in the second chapter about the wedding at Cana of Galilee. You notice where it comes in the Gospel of John. It comes immediately after John the Baptist 
has introduced him as the Messiah, and he has picked up five disciples, maybe six. And now, with these new disciples, he starts on his way. And where does he go first? He goes to a wedding. You know, I think I was 40 years of age before I got up the courage to preach on the wedding at Cana of Galilee. And my reason was, after all, what's a prohibitionist Methodist going to do with turning water into wine? But the second thing was, it seemed entirely too trivial for a Sunday morning. Because, you see, here is the first of his miracles. He's beginning the redemption of the world, and he does making refreshments for a social occasion. I thought, wait a minute. This salvation business is bigger business than making refreshments for a social occasion. But do you know what John calls that wedding at Cana of Galilee? It is the first of seven signs. And it says his disciples beheld his glory there and believed on him. They were following. Now they're beginning to believe. Now why does his ministry begin with that wedding? You know, uh, I have an English friend associated with Andrew Murray's mission for years and the old South Africa general mission was a missionary himself and pastored New York and associated with Columbia Bible College or Columbia International University. Peter preached for me one night and he preached on this text. I'll never forget his opening line. We had a gang of young people there and he had them instantly. He said, you know, the Bible teaches the rightness of short courtship. He said, my text tonight is on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And so what was obvious, a girl walking down one side of the street, a boy coming up the other, the boy looks across the street and likes what he sees, the girl doesn't object to what she sees, and three days later there's a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, you know, you know enough to know that's not why it's there. It's telling you how early in the ministry of Jesus, after the baptism of Jesus by John, that wedding at Cana of Galilee, it's the beginning of his ministry. Now, as I began thinking about that, I thought, well, you know, the Bible does have some interesting things to say about weddings. If you go back to Genesis, that's the way human history begins. It doesn't begin with a church service or a political meeting. It begins with a wedding. And God's the one who provides the bride, serves as the best man. Climax of the creation process is a wedding. And I thought, for heaven's sake, the end of human history is a wedding. You get to Revelation 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, and you get the marriage supper of the Lamb. So history itself goes from a wedding to a wedding. I thought, is that the reason John begins the ministry of Jesus with a wedding? And then I found two texts that I had skipped for years. You know, those that you see, you don't know what to do, so you just roll right over them very quickly. One of them is in the third chapter of John, after John 3.16 in that passage. We're told about John the Baptist and his disciples. And some people come to John and say, you used to get big crowds, but that fellow you baptized has stolen your crowd. 
How do you feel about him upstaging you like that? And so John the Baptist used that phrase, he must increase, but I must decrease. And I thought that sounded pious, so that was a good text, and I like that. But that other part he said, I didn't know what to do with it. He said, let me put it in my parlance. He said, should the best man be shocked that at the wedding announcement party, the bridegroom upstages him? At a wedding announcement party, the bridegroom, not the best man, is center stage. He's the bridegroom. I'm the best man. And I thought, for heaven's sake, John the Baptist sees human history in nuptial terms. And he sees the ministry of Jesus in nuptial terms. What human history is about is about a wedding. Then I found that passage, it's in all three of the synoptics, where they came to Jesus and said, uh, John's disciples had good religion. They fast when they prayed. Your disciples don't fast. And Jesus said, is it appropriate for the friends of the bridegroom to fast at the wedding announcement party? At the wedding announcement party, the friends of the bridegroom feast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken from them. Then the friends of the bridegroom will fast. And what's he saying? I'm the bridegroom, and I've come to get a wife. I've come to get a bride. And that's what history is all about. Did you know that your sexuality is a witness to what history is all about? We come in male and female editions, and God has written it into our physical being, His purpose that we might come into a relationship with the Son that is as intimate and as loving and is committed as a relationship between a husband and a wife are supposed to be. Now, you know, that puts marriage in a very different category, doesn't it? It puts human sexuality in a different position, doesn't it? But God, the great designer, has designed life so that if we miss him and if we miss his ways, it's not because it isn't written into our world and into even our flesh. And so... We have these passages. I think this has helped me at one point because uh, it's helped me understand why God is so unhappy with sexual irregularity. And the reason is that they do violence to the best example that we have of the kind of relationship that Christ wants with me. Because, you see, the relationship Christ wants with me is one in which I do the same thing for him that I did with Elsie. I gave myself exclusively to her. And she is in my life without rival or competitor. And it is the only relationship in life where you get that exclusivity. You see, the fact that you've got one friend here doesn't keep you from having a friend there. And in a family, you'll have more than one child. But in a marriage, it's two. And it's total. She's all yours. You're all hers. Without condition. Until death us do part. For better or for worse. 
riches or in poverty, in health or not health. The commitment is there. And Jesus says, that's the way I want to be in your life. I want to be without rival or competitor. Total commitment, permanent commitment. And it's to be a love relationship, a joy. What greater joy is there than a Christian marriage? There's nothing equal to it for joy that you give to each other. I don't have a question. One of the reasons <laughs> I've lived as long as I have is because I'm married to Ellen. And I ought to pay tribute from time to time to that. Because the joy that she has brought into my life. And that's the way God wants your relationship to him to be. When God brings Israel out of Egypt, he brings Israel to Sinai, the people are now here. And he says to Moses, tell the people, I have brought you on eagle's wings, not to the promised land, or not to freedom. I've brought you to myself. And he says, if you'll keep the covenant that we're entering here, you will be to me, the language that's used in translation is, a prized possession or a treasured possession. Now, the Hebrew word's interesting. It's a word that only occurs somewhere seven or nine times in the Old Testament. I've forgotten which it is, but very few. But it is a word which is used of a jewel, piece of jewelry, that is extremely valuable and extremely beautiful and that gives its owner great joy. So here's the God who's redeemed Israel from Egypt, and he says, you're like a priceless treasure to me. You're a thing of beauty to me. That's hard to believe, isn't it? <laughs> but love's blind. That's the reason I got healthy. <laughs> but uh, anyway, a thing of beauty, a thing of joyful delight, exquisite delight. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, if you'll read the Song of Songs, which is love poetry, and you know, sometimes people have trouble knowing why it's in the Bible, because there's nothing religious in it. <laughs> the longer I've lived, the more I like that. Love stands on its own feet. Because, you see, if it's true love down here, it's a reflection of what's there you see, and speaks of it. I had to do a commentary on the Song of Songs, so I lived with it for a while. And I found two things very interesting. It's love poetry between a man and a woman, male and a female. And in all the books, there's not a reference to children. Do you know how you justified marriage in that day? You had a wife so she could give you progeny. Like Henry VIII needed a son. So a wife was an instrument to give you progeny. And even the Psalms talks about children having a quiver full, desirable. There's not a reference to children in the Song of Songs. 
And it is about the sexual relationship between a man and a woman. That sort of blew me out of the water for a little while. Then you know what I decided? You don't have to have children to justify married love. It stands on its own feet and is a good in itself. And, of course, the beautiful thing is, if you let two people live together in love, you have to take abnormal means to keep them from having babies, don't you, normally? But nevertheless, the love is there. But the other thing that got me, you see, in the traditional understanding, the male is God and the female is us, the body of Christ, the church, or in the Old Testament, Israel. If you take that, and I think that's fair, the interesting thing is, I'm part of the bride, not not part of the groom. So we get our, our male-female relationships, interestingly, mixed here, don't we? But nevertheless, if the male represents the divine God and the female represents us, which poetry should be the most ecstatic, the fullest, and the most beautiful? where we describe God or where he describes us. The interesting thing in the Song of Songs is the poems from her are less poetic, less long, and less ecstatic than the poems from him about her. That shocked me. But I got to thinking about it. If he's perfection and we're not, and if he's the eternal God, and he's eternal love, he ought to be able to love more than you and me. And so his ecstasy in us is greater than any ecstasy that we can have in him. Now, I don't know what anybody else thinks, but I think God gets more joy out of you than you'll ever get out of him. Because he's eternal. And you and I are not. Now with all that, you and I must remember he's the Holy One. And he'll deal with us in justice about our sins and all that. But the potential in the relationship between a believer and Christ is reflected in that. His heart rejoices in us. Now, uh, If that's so, then living with him ought to be a joy and ought to be a thrill, exciting, and it ought to be something that I find great fulfillment in. And it ought to make me want to get as close to him as I can get so I can enjoy him as fully as I can and so he can enjoy me. So you get this written into our lives our sexuality, and this uh, truth about we're to be the sons of the Father, daughters of the Father, and we're to be the bride of the Son. Now let me take you back for a few minutes to the 16th chapter of Ezekiel that we referred to a little while ago. You remember he said, your father was an Amorite, your mother was a Hittite, and when you were born they threw you out in the wilderness and left you in your blood to die. And I came along and saw you in your bloods, and I said, live. I took you and bathed you, fed you, nurtured you, clothed you, 
and you grew and developed, and you became a beautiful young lady. And when the time of love came along, I came along and cast my cloak over you and claimed you for myself, and you became my bride. Now that's God speaking about Israel, his relationship to it. You know, that's a very priceless story. I have a daughter who's teaching the book of Ezekiel recently. And she had a mother in her class who came to her. And she said at the end of the lesson on that, she said, Oh, that's my chapter. And Beth said, What do you mean? Well, she said, You know, I don't know who my mother was. I don't know who my father was. I've never known. So I'm without mother and father. I was adopted, and my stepfather, my father who adopted me, sexually abused me. And so I didn't know about my real parents. They rejected me. And then the parent who adopted me used me. She said, I was just like that baby in Ezekiel 16. But my father came along. The true father, and he adopted me. (laughs) And he made me his own. And now, I'm the daughter of the Father and the bride of the Son. And she said, I can stand tall and rejoice in who I am. Now, where are you going to get that kind of gospel except here? Now, there may be somebody in the crowd says, well, what if you don't marry? (laughs) I remember preaching some of this in chapel at the college. My secretary was single. When I came in, she was sort of subdued, and she wonderful human being, great Christian. She looked up at me and said, what about me? I said, well, you know, marriage is a symbol of a reality. And the reality is better than the symbol. So what Elsie and I have is the symbol of the reality, and you don't even have to bother with it. You can go straight to the real thing. And she sort of blinked and stared a little. But I believe that. Now, that's one of the reasons for this two parts of a play. Let me tell you about that play quickly. There are three acts. This part is from the second act. The first act is where a young man and a young woman in Poland fall in love. Very beautiful relationship and they marry. When they get married, she gets pregnant. And while she's pregnant, he's sent off to the battlefront. And he's killed. And then a son is born. So the son never sees his father, and his father, of course, never saw the son. Now, the second act is about another couple who fall in love and get married and have three children. But like so many couples, chasm develops between them. And so, now, they sleep in the same bed, live under the same roof, eat at the same table, but they live in two totally different worlds. The third act, is where the son of the first marriage and the daughter of the second are falling in love and are trying to build the basis for a, for a genuine marriage and a true marriage. But in that second act, the wife who is now estranged from her husband and the husband who's estranged from her, though they live together, every day that she goes to work, she has to pass a jewelry store. Now, I'm not sure of this, but I think The implication is that it was in that jewelry store's windows 
that she and her fiancé picked out their engagement ring and their wedding ring. So it's a reminder of their relationship. Every day she passes that jewelry shop. The name of the play is The Jeweler's Shop. Now, one day she's walking past, angry at her husband, feeling rejected, hurt. She says, I'll just go in there and sell my wedding ring, and Stefan will even never notice that it's gone. So she goes in to see the old jewel. And she hands the ring to him and tells him she wants to sell it. And the old jeweler picks the ring up, looks at it very carefully, turns it, reads the inscription on the inside, and then he lays it down on his scale. And as he lays it on his scale, he stares, and then he turns to her and says, Daughter, this ring doesn't weigh anything. The needle doesn't move a milligram. Your husband must be alive. And this ring has no value without its mate. Because you see, my jeweler scales have this peculiarity, that they weigh not the metal, but man's entire being and fate. And so she says, Anna says, ashamed, I took the ring back and I left the shop without a word. I think, though, that he followed me with his eyes. That's an entrancing passage to me. Because, you see, the interesting thing is I was written by a bachelor. But look at this passage where he is speaking about the woman, Anna. She's speaking about what she's lost. I could not reconcile myself to this, nor could I prevent a rift opening between us. Its edges stood still at first. But at any moment they could move apart, wider and wider. At any rate, I did not feel them moving closer together again. It was as if Stefan had ceased to be in me. Did I cease to be in him too? Or was it simply that I felt I now existed only in myself? At first I felt such a stranger in myself. It was as if I had become unaccustomed to the walls of my interior. So full had they been of Stephen that without him they seemed empty. Is it not too terrible a thing to have committed the walls of my interior to a single inhabitant who could disinherit myself and somehow deprive me of my place in it? Because, you see, she lost herself when she lost him. If you keep your life, you lose it. If you lose your life in him, you find it. And the person who wrote that was a bachelor. Because you can know the reality without ever knowing the symbol. It was Paul that gave us 1 Corinthians 13, and he didn't carry a wife around with him. And Jeremiah wrote some of the most plaintive things and beautiful things about Yahweh's love for Israel, his bride, and their relationship as a young couple in love. And yet he, you remember, didn't have a wife. So you don't have to fiddle with the symbol. You can go direct to Christ and know him in all the intimacy and all the joy that goes with it. Now, I'm not sure of this, 
But I think Exodus 19 is the background for that play. Because you see, the jeweler shop, he's the expert on the jewel. A thing of great worth, of great beauty, and it brings exquisite delight to its owner. And you see, that's what a bride brings to a husband. And that's what we are supposed to bring to Christ. It's enough to make you worship him, isn't it? And it's enough to make you want to get as close and as intimate with him as you can get. That's the reason I stuck this hymn in here. Jesus, priceless treasure. (laughs) Here you get it turned where the hymn writer sees in Christ what Christ sees in us. A priceless treasure. Jesus, source of purest pleasure, truest friend to me. You see, the figures get mixed. Long my heart had panted till it well nigh fainted, thirsting after thee. Thine I am, O spotless lamb. I will suffer naught to hide thee, ask for naught beside thee. You, O Christ, are enough. If I have you, nothing else is necessary. Now I want to know if you've ever come to that place with him where he is that kind of priceless treasure for you. God can make himself that. And what a joy it is. And that's what I wanted to say tonight. Will you bow your heads with me? Our Father, there's nobody in our midst who doesn't know what it means to be courted. Because that's who your Son is. And you've given him to court us and to draw us to himself and to you. And that's what you're doing tonight, drawing us to yourself. Because you love us. You are love. And you love us. So let us know the joy of finding in you our completeness and our fulfillment to where you, O Lord, are all we want more than all in you we find, as the songwriter said. And let our time together here do something about our relationship to you that when we get home we'll walk in a more intimate relationship with you than we did before we came. And give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear from the world in which we live all of the witnesses that are about us of your love and your care and your concern. And we will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.